I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part one in our series, An Alternative Society. As we begin our annual vision series, it's appropriate to look back on the story of our church. Due to a recording mishap, the first few minutes of this teaching were not recorded live. I've replaced the missing audio in the studio. This is the beginning of a voicemail a friend of mine left me on October 1st, 2013. Hey dude, it's Gerald. I just got done listening to your message from Sunday night uh, from a few weeks back. But before I play the rest of it, there's some other stuff you need to know. A bit of a disclaimer about tonight. Ordinarily, during this particular stretch of the Sunday gathering, we make space to open and study the Scriptures together, to love God with our minds, to constantly bring the teachings of Jesus to bear on every aspect of our lives. A lot of tonight is a story, our story. Tonight we're beginning our annual vision series, which is a time for us to circle up as a family and remind one another why we're here, what we're up to, and a bit about where we're going, God willing. This fall, we're going to talk about what it means to be a church at all, a family, a community. So think of tonight as the prologue. Let's go back to 16 years ago. 16 years ago, on an afternoon in 2007, as I sat watching the interstate unspool from the window of the 15-passenger van in which I, for all intents and purposes, lived, the tiny display of my Nokia phone emanated a pale blue light. I got a text message from my then-girlfriend, now-wife, Abby. She'd been to a church service for young adults in Portland. I think you'd like this guy, she wrote of the pastor there. She told me about a website where I could download audio recordings of his sermons, so I did, and she was right. I'd concluded a few weird years of what today is often called deconstruction, and though there would be years of work purging pride and cynicism, my heart was beginning to soften toward the idea of church, of pastors. So, I listened, and she was right. I liked the guy, and I was learning stuff. I was on the precipice of big change, and it was exciting. I was ready to believe stuff, really believe it, I mean. A few years later, a lot had changed. I'd married my girlfriend. I'd soldiered on in my journey of following Jesus, of learning. In the early months of 2011, I took a walk in the woods behind the house where I grew up in southeast Georgia to talk to God. I was preparing to once again board a 15-passenger van for another few months of traveling city to city, state to state, playing in a band, which had, for a decade, been the rhythm of my life, year in and year out. There were months of this stuff already scheduled. The States in the spring, Europe in the fall, New Zealand in the winter. In my mind, I figured there were years of this to come. No end in sight. I didn't have any other plans, and I liked it. My wife Abby and I had been planning a move from the south to the Pacific Northwest later that year where I would resume traveling, albeit from a new home base. And that was a big change, so I wanted to pray about it. I took a walk. I passed beneath oak trees draped in bundled coils of Spanish moss deeper into the forest, and God spoke up. He said, by way of a sudden invasive thought to suddenly blossom in my imagination, as if from nowhere, I want you to become a pastor and to teach other people about the Bible and theology. I thought, huh, that's weird. I don't have any theological education, no pastoral experience, no Bible college, and given my unforgiving traveling schedule, I wasn't involved in any church at the time. But it was vivid, a message 
that clear and that haunting was unusual for me. It seemed to carry a unique weight. So even though I had nowhere to take it at the time, really, I filed it away. I didn't tell anyone other than my wife. And a few days later, I left as planned and spent the first few months of 2011 on the road. When the tour came to an end, Abby and I moved from Georgia to Portland, as had been our plan. But the move was about more than getting out of Georgia, something we both wanted to do. Having been without a church home for the last few years, we'd felt as if something was missing. When we get out there, we said to each other, let's try that church, the one we'd been listening to since 2006, the one that she texted me about all those years ago. It seemed like as good an idea as any. Having haunted a dozen or so churches in Georgia, we decided this time would be different. See, in Georgia, we visited churches like potential homeowners browsing an open house, scrutinizing everything, judging. Was everything just to our liking? No, next church. If we go, we decided this time, let's really go. Let's be there every Sunday. Let's sign up to volunteer. Let's say hey to people and introduce ourselves and accept invitations and make friends. Let's really go. And we did. We never missed church, ever. We showed up early to help set up, and we stayed after to vacuum floors. Both of us. And we befriended the other vacuum-wielding volunteers. We didn't have any aspirations to like climb any ladders. We didn't really care about joining like any level of leadership. It didn't really matter at all to us whether or not we were like buddies with the staff or the church leaders. We were honestly at this point just happy to be there. We joined a small group. We showed up every single week to that group. We made friends. We joined up with the different outreach programs in the city in which our church was involved. We were involved. And something was happening to us and in our marriage. We were growing and maturing more in that first year or two in church than in the previous five years combined. And the church was so big that once a year we would rent Hillsborough Stadium and so that thousands of people across this church, it was like a multi-location megachurch, they would all come together, gather in one place and be like, wow, look how big this church is. Um, not as a show-off thing, but as like a sign of solidarity and encouragement. And, uh, and I remember Abby and I were standing in the bleachers as uh, the lead pastor kind of descended the steps going down toward the stage. And he stopped and he gave us a hug and he said something that I've never forgotten. Um, and it sounds weird for me to tell you guys this, but bear with me here. He said, thank God for you guys. He said, I wish I had hundreds of people like you two. And I, again, understand that sounds braggy and self-congratulatory, but I'm telling you that this part of the story because I can understand it now in a way that I did not understand, quite frankly, all those years ago. If Abby and I had any impressive gifts for ministry, no one would have known at this point, not even us. Uh, we weren't like writing music for the church. We weren't like pre uh, preaching or anything. We weren't in any kind of leadership whatsoever. I wasn't, she wasn't having like weekly coffee with the staff or elders. We didn't hang out with the pastors on the weekend. We weren't on stage for any reason ever. And in this gigantic mega church, there were dozens of incredibly gifted people front and center who did all those things and thousands of people there who had no idea who we even were. Now, so of course, when he said this nice thing, I was touched by his kindness, and, but we were also kind of suspicious, like, thank God for us, sure, nice, I get, you know, he's a pastor, he's supposed to say things like that, hyper, hyperbolic though it may be. 
But then years later, I feel like God brought that memory to mind, and I realized that when he said, oh, thank God for you guys, he wasn't like um, making this empty celebration of talents or some noteworthy impact that we'd made on the church when we really hadn't. Um, he was celebrating the fact that we were there at all. You know, uh, we, he wasn't feigning some intimate friendship that we didn't actually have and pretending that we were close and we weren't. He was just saying, I'm grateful that you guys show up. But in that moment, I thought maybe he was just being warm, flattering us a bit. So we smiled and we said, oh, that's so nice of you to say. And we thanked him and that was that. Eventually, because I was always around, I eventually befriended this guy and a few conversations about theology and Bible stuff led to a few more. And I found myself over the span of years meeting and talking routinely about how one teaches the Bible and theology. And he was urging me to learn more and grow more and apply for grad school. So I went to seminary. And I started to think again about that thing God had said years before, the thing that I filed away with nowhere to put at the time. And then one day, he asked if I would like to preach a sermon at church on Sunday. Now, again, I was not pastor. I, I wasn't even anyone at the church that anyone knew of in any meaningful way. I was just some dude in whom the actual pastor happened to take an interest. So 10 years ago, I looked all these dates up, by the way, for fact-checking, for your sake, you know. Uh, 10 years ago on September 14th, 2013, my wife Abby and I, we drove out to Pacific City, we parked on the beach, we sat in the open trunk, this sounds so romanticized, we sat in our open trunk, we watched the sunset, our first son Beck was with us, he was just in utero at the time, um, but we knew that the next day I was going to give this first sermon, my first sermon ever, but first sermon at our church, and it's not like we had some kind of prophetic sense of like, wow, this is a turning point in our life, nothing like that at all. But we both knew that it was something meaningful. We both knew that I'd heard this thing all these years ago, and this was at least some kind of um, fruition of that thing. We didn't know where it was going. And quite frankly, I was terrified. She was probably nervous on my behalf, but I was absolutely like stomach in knots, the whole thing. But the next day came, um, I did the thing, I preached uh, in front of the church. I'm sure, honestly, it was, that's me, the tiny little uh, figure on the stage there. I'm sure it wasn't very good, and that's not, you know, self-depreciation or anything. It was just like a first sermon. But it seemed to go well, or at least well enough, and everyone was really nice to me because they're like, oh, look, you did it, you know, <laughs> like patting me on the back and everything. And my friend, the lead pastor, he stood with me in the back of the sanctuary. Some of you guys know this story, but he stood with me in the back of the sanctuary after it was over, and he put his hand on my shoulder, and he said, you know, I think you can do this. I, I think I sensed God's calling over your life. I believe in you, and here's where you guys come in. A couple of weeks later, another pastor friend of mine on staff, he hadn't been there that night. Again, it's a big church, multiple locations and gatherings, so he wasn't at the particular gathering where I taught that night, and he finally got around to listening to the recording, and he called me to tell me what he thought. It was October 1st, 2013, and he left me this voicemail. Let's see if we can hear it. Oh, Tyson's getting it. Sunday night uh, from a few weeks back, and it was, hey dude, it's Gerald. I just got done listening to your message from Sunday night uh, from a few weeks back, and it was so good. Seriously, I love that there was a very kind of natural, comfortable tone. Um, I've told you this before, but I love your, your word choice. I think as an author, you have an ability to like think through and to word things well. Um, great humor, great kind of personal connection, dude, it was awesome. And I seriously think you need to pray about 
a Jesus Church in Vancouver. I'm not kidding. It's ready, dude. The people in Vancouver are ready. They're like the villagers. They picked up their pitchforks and their shovels and their axes, and they're riding in the streets, and they're like, why don't we have a Jesus Church in Vancouver? And you, you, Josh, need to answer that question. Yeah, weird, huh? Weird, huh? Uh, yeah, he asked me to think about it, so I did a lot, prayed about it. And then I asked my wife, Abby, what she thought about disrupting this life that we'd build in Portland at that church that we love so much and in which we had grown so much. And she said, and I quote, I would have to hear the audible voice of God <laughs> to sign off on planting a church in Vancouver. But because God has a sense of humor and because my wife is a righteous woman, no one heard God's audible voice, but we did sense his leading and we said yes anyway, even though she promised not to, unless she heard God's audible voice. It's funny like that. And uh, our pastors, they connected us with Scott and Kristen Barguer. A lot of you guys know them. Who, they lived in Vancouver, live in Vancouver, and they had been leading a collection of house churches across the city. So Scott and I started meeting early in the morning every week to talk and pray about even the idea of a church plant. Some other folks eventually joined in. We brought this idea to the church in Portland. We invited other people to pray and plan with us. And for a year, uh, we actually met right across from where we're sitting right now in the, uh, in the Portal Cafe. Do, do any of you guys remember these prayer gatherings that we had? There you go. Oh, I can see Scott and Chris. Right? Hi, yes, Keanu, you were there. Um, those were interesting times. Every month we'd get together in the Portal. There was a dozen, maybe two dozen of us in there talking, praying about the church that we would like to plant. And we did that for a year until our first Sunday gathering on Easter, March 27th, 2016. Was, how many of you guys were happened to be there? Hey, Allie, yeah, 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 yeah. So that's so beautiful. A lot of you guys are, hey, Katie, I can see all the, she timidly was like, meh, me. <laughs> um, and uh, that was wild. Uh, lots of well-wishers and kind of visiting friends just there to support the send-off made for a packed chaotic, terrifying evening, even if I may say so, quite stressful. Uh, there was a lot of people there for that first Sunday. In fact, um, I specifically was like, hey, close off this balcony. No one's coming to this thing. It's going to be embarrassing if we have them all spread out across this whole building. And I came out from a meeting upstairs and saw all these people in the balcony. I was ticked already. The pastor was ticked. I was like, what the heck? I told him to close this off. And I came downstairs and saw Cam. And he was pale. His face was terrified. I was like, what happened with the balcony? He's like, dude, we don't have enough room for anyone. Um, so that was great. Anyway, those early years became like this whirlwind for, for me, for our team, for our church. Uh, as a staff, a lot of you guys know this, we always likened it then and now to The Muppet Show. <laughs> Because it was kind of like uh, this barely controlled chaos. It was an event that was like held together by strings and on the verge of collapse and like anarchy. But somehow it was still happening. I guess I'm Kermit in this metaphor or analogy and Patrick was like Scooter. I guess Cam's Fozzie. I don't know. <laughs> um, but eventually things became less like The Muppet Show by the grace of God or, or you know, for the worse, whatever. At least most of the time, it's not quite like The Muppet Show anymore. We started to understand a bit more about who we are, what we're up to, how we go about doing it, and, and more and more of us were coming along to serve and contribute in a meaningful way and kind of with competence and um, vision for the church and the future. And for more than seven years later, we have been getting together on Sunday 
and throughout the week in smaller groups that we call Van City Communities. So when you show up on a Sunday night, this is the small story into which you step. And you are being invited to belong to that story as much as anyone else who has been here all seven years and more. That's the beauty of this thing. A lot has changed, obviously, but some things haven't changed at all. Earlier, Lexi read from Philippians. Philippians is a letter written by this master apprentice of Jesus called Paul, and much of the letter is actually a thank you note. Paul was in prison at the time, we think in Rome, and he had been writing and preaching what amounted to a treasonous message that there was a, a Lord, a new king, and his name was Jesus, which was a not-so-subtle inference that the other guy claiming to be Lord and king, Caesar, was not actually Lord and king, false king. Jesus is the real king, so Paul's eventually arrested as an enemy of the state, locked up in a Roman prison. In the Roman prison system, things like food and water and clothing are actually not provided. So prisoners would rely on family and friends to come, take care of them, share with them food, water, clothes, whatever they needed while they're locked up in the slammer. But Paul was more than a thousand miles away from Jerusalem and the small Christian community there. He was in the heart of the empire, the dark place. And he was actually, we think, starving to death in prison. So then a guy called Epaphroditus shows up. Epaphroditus belonged to a church that Paul actually planted in a city called Philippi. So when Paul was nearing the brink of death, um, Epaphroditus appears on behalf of the Philippian church with money and food and water and clothes, and Paul's life was saved. The church was who they were supposed to be, so Paul did not starve to death or freeze to death in prison. So later... Paul sends a letter back to the church in Philippi, which is, among other things, a thank you note. So one more time, I'm going to read Philippians 1, beginning with verse 1. We read, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons, meaning the leaders of the church, listen, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus the King. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. This is, again, a letter written to a church, an entire group of people. The you in verse 6, meaning he who began a good work in you, is written in the plural, to the church, his then Hours now, the one who began a good work in all of you, in me, in us, will carry that work on to completion. Jesus, our teacher, our master, our Lord, has begun doing something in our lives. Those of us who have taken up with Jesus, who have declared him Lord and King over our lives, who have decided to follow him, to practice his way of life, he will carry on to completion that work in our lives by his spirit. And he will do it in this venue of shared life. This letter is written to a church, and Jesus will keep doing it until he renews all things completely and for good. And I've actually seen this happening. I've experienced it, and I've observed it. When a pandemic closures put a three-month halt to in-person gatherings in early 2020, 
That was actually the first time in a decade I realized as I was writing this, doing the math, looking at the calendar, the first time in a decade that my family and I suddenly found ourselves without the weekly routine of church and community, whether, you know, church, whether that's in a pew or around a dinner table. And I say this as someone who has experienced all the same trials and tribulations of shared life as the rest of you guys, with the added stress of attempting to lead this thing with a, te a team of people. And the loss of church was devastating to me in a, in a way that I, I couldn't have expected, I, I think. I, I remember asking myself strange questions about that unique pain that I was feeling. I knew that, you know, like as a Christian, I'm supposed to value church. I, I knew that I sincerely liked church and that I enjoy hanging out with you guys. I enjoy the rhythm and routine of Sunday. In spite of all its many imperfections, I actually like church. But, you know, quite frankly, in spite of all the pandemic unpleasantness, I was essentially given at least a kind of vacation from work in a way, it takes a lot to prepare for the Sunday gathering. It can be quite stressful, and now we don't have to do that. And I'm not ordinarily a workaholic, so I didn't feel like, oh, my God, who am I if I don't work, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, I had a break from really big crowds and people, um, and I love hanging out, but I find time alone more restful than time with crowds. So I was like, this is kind of interesting. And I talked to other pastors who were like, well, don't tell anybody, but it's, it's bad, but it's also quite nice, you know, to have a break from the Sunday gathering. And I was like, oh, why is this so hard and so painful? And as I was asking that question before God, the Spirit of God gave me that passage from Philippians. And I would read it and think about you guys. I thank my God every time I think of you. Now, I have obviously, a very long way to go, as those of you who know me well know enough, well enough. But all the transforming that I have done across the ebb and flow of my adult life has happened in the church. It has happened in the sacred rhythms of shared life, warts and all. What are we doing here? Why do we continue to do this? Why the vision series every year? Why Van City at all? I'm at the risk of sounding a little dorky. I'm going to read to you guys from a book I read. I know this is kind of, I've, I played you a clip of someone telling me, oh, you're teaching so good, and now I'm going to read. Um, but I was going to rewrite this and just decided that I would leave it as is. A 12-year-old boy opens the heavy steel door of a Philadelphia boxing gym. Inside hang a dozen heavy punching bags. They're cracked leather bound and ancient duct tape. Other young men hit the bags with sage-like focus under sweat-beaded brows. An older man approaches this new boy and asks what he's looking for. A coach, the boy says. I want to learn. Catherine Dunn, beloved novelist and boxing journalist, wrote about a scene like this one in her book, One Ring Circus. A good boxer, she claimed, is a miracle of chaos in mathematics. When I think about the complex variables required to bring the right kid to the right coach in the right place at the right time, I am, I am amazed that it ever happens at all. The coach asks this 12-year-old boy to assume a fighting stance, and then using only a finger, the coach stabs at the kid's shoulder, and the kid loses his balance. They go back and forth like this, the kid trying to stabilize his stance, and the coach with a finger exposing his instability. His point made, the coach points to the sweat-encrusted floorboards and tells the young man to imagine a square. The coach shows the young man where to set his feet within the imaginary square, and lo, his balance is miraculously set, and even when poked, the young man does not stumble. To the world beyond the gym, this scene is an absurd one. 
But this young man, if he so chooses, will carry this imagined square beyond the doors of that ramshackle gym, out into his world, his school. He'll see that square on his bedroom floor, on his neighborhood sidewalk, and then he will decide if he will bring it back to that gym the next day and the next. And if he so chooses to fan that little flame, it will burn like fire until all of his life is the gym and every moment is the training. The training will require that this boy deny himself the license of those who are not training. He will not eat what they eat, not sleep when they sleep. His days busied with the stuff of apprenticeship. He will willfully deny himself many things he desires, and the denying will hurt. Other young men who entered the gym the same day, who imagined the same square, who experienced the same little flame erupt in their hearts, they might fall away. When they compare the cost of the training to the freedoms and frivolities of non-training, they will hit their snooze buttons and stop showing up. This, too, will hurt the boy, but he understands. The ask is so high. No one beyond the gym will ever understand the training. Not really, nor should they. That's okay. Neither this boy nor his coach will walk the streets of Philadelphia barking at vagrants and commuting businessmen, shaming them, demanding they begin their own training. They will not demand non-boxers to crowd their worldly schedules with exercise and drills. They won't prowl the bus handing out meal plans and protein supplements. These other people, they aren't training. What business is it of the coach to train non-boxers? To the non-boxer, the passerby, the language of the gym would be alien and meaningless, the sacrifices of the protege without purpose. It was the young man who stepped into the gym and asked for training, not them. The students of that gym belong to a code. Students are not prisoners of their training. It must be chosen, and it must be chosen again and again and again. And as the training is chosen, the trainees carry their coaches square everywhere they go. They choose what those who are not training would never choose, and they dutifully deny what those who are not training happily indulge. There will be some in this young man's life who behold who beholden to his cuts and bruises, inconvenienced by his schedule and diet and the demanding rhythms of his training, will encourage him to hang up the gloves for good. There will be others who are threatened by this young man's dedication. His passion will become a painful spotlight on their own listlessness, and they will chastise his focus as a young life wasted. They will call him less than a person. They will speak to him of the good life a life he is missing, or maybe they will needle holes in his lifestyle imploring him to soften his commitments. Box, they'll tell him, but not like this. And maybe these jeering other voices will discourage this young man so that he stops showing up to the gym, but maybe not. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. In church leadership, we talk about tiers of participation, which sounds all formal and corporate, I know, but really, it's just a helpful way for us to understand exactly what it is to which each of you are being invited. Um, Catherine Dunn, like I mentioned earlier, she wrote about boxers by observing them in gyms and in the ring. She was a novelist and a journalist. She was not a boxer, but she was welcomed into the world of boxing, and she observed there are those who train, and then there are those who fight, and then there are amateurs and professionals and prospects, contenders, champions, unified champions, and undisputed champions. Church, of course, does not have an accomplishment or skill-based hierarchy of status or value at all, but there are certain tiers of participation. 
some folks come to the Sunday gathering to observe, and that is beautiful. If that's you, you are absolutely welcome, not only welcome, but encouraged to do that. We are honestly honored to have you visit and sit with us. Come back, do it again, take your time. That's great. Others of you, you're training. You're serving the family of God by making coffee or preparing communion or teaching our kids or our youth. Um, some of you are fighting. You're doing that, and you're in community. You're practicing spiritual disciplines. You're opening your life to the messy and, quite frankly, often painful but life-giving accountability of community. And by the grace of God, we have men and women in this room who have been faithfully following Jesus for decades. All of you are welcome. Whatever it is that you think about God right now, whatever it is that you think about Jesus, wherever you are or are not, in your journey of following Jesus, you are absolutely welcome. May you experience the grace and hospitality of God's family as you sit and observe and ponder and train and fight and contend with your brothers and sisters. And to those of you who are, for now anyway, observing, our humble invitation will always be, join us, come train, come fight. Come follow Jesus with us, your broken brothers and sisters, as we ice our hands and nurse our wounds and stand and fight together. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Over the summer, the overseers of Van City Church were kind enough to give me a sabbatical, and I had weeks to pray and reflect on the years of Van City and my place in the Van City story. I'm not like the big boss on top of the pyramid or anything like that, but uh, I'm just one leader among many. And yet, I was in a way sort of first to the table, I guess, beginning with that voicemail all those years ago. So in some sense, I feel what might be a kind of unique responsibility for the vision of our church. So I asked God while I was on sabbatical, where are we going? Will, where will you lead us so that I can lead others accordingly? The church is not an event. It's not a provided public service. It's not even a subculture, which is how many of us think of it. It has been and will forever be an alternative society, meaning it is a unique or you could say holy, all-encompassing way of life that asks all, not some, but all of those who live it. It's in this way of life, the way of Jesus, put into practice together that we are who we are as disciples. Church is the venue in which the work of Jesus began in us by saving us is carried on to completion. He is who he says he is, so we're here. He showed up for us, and we show up for him and for one another in the venue of shared life that we call the church. That is what this is all about. I spent the last uh, few days in Alabama, and people would come up to me, and they would ask, how are things going with your church out there in the Northwest? And those kind of like brief, superficial exchanges, I find myself often battling uh, reflex pleasantries. You know, someone's like, how are you doing? You're like, good. You don't even think about it, and they're like, actually terrible or something. So I want to answer honestly, but also, you know, appropriately within the social context. The stranger's like, how are you doing? You're like, terrible. I've been going through this dark, you know, whatever. So I'm, trying, I'm still learning to balance that tension. So I found myself saying, oh, like, oh, people would ask, how's, how's that church doing out in the Northwest? And I'd say, good. And then I'd, I'd find myself thinking and realizing I was answering honestly. 
really good, actually, beautiful, actually. Now, of course, I am not talking about a church that has somehow mastered its interpersonal conflicts or leadership shortcomings or eradicated sin or vanquished all traces of hypocrisy. This side of resurrection, there is no such church, just to be clear, if I can help slow, you know, like, uh, you, if you're bouncing church to, from church to church looking for such a thing, I'll save you the trouble. You won't find that particular church. Um, and I made my peace with the reality of the human predicament a very long time ago. I don't know of any church with no division whatsoever, where the leaders have not failed in any way whatsoever, where there is never any trace of discord, where no one ever hurts anyone else. I know of no church because there is no church. The church is broken because we, as human beings, are broken. And as much as we prefer to imagine in world, a world in which we and we only have been victimized by others, the truth is that all of us contribute to the victimization of, of other people. So shocker, the church is, as is any place with people present, imperfect. But even so, and to no credit whatsoever of my own, and entirely by the goodness and generosity of God, these years together have been beautiful. We have been battling uphill through all the painful landmarks of any church, with more to come, I'm sure, but it has been one of the great joys of my life to see God speak to this family and to heal us and to change us and to save us. People have come to faith in this church. People have been changed in this church and they've been found freedom in community and they've been held accountable by other people. I have survived the worst years of my life with you guys. I've suffered my worst hurts in your midst and I have experienced the presence of God with you. I have received life-changing prophetic wisdom spoken over me by you. I have been held accountable by you. I have taken sacred communion every single week with you guys, with my kids, with my wife and my family and my friends. God has been continuing the good work that he began in me here with you guys. An alternative society does not thrive on faithlessness. It can't even survive without profound commitment. So as we spend the next weeks ahead talking about what it means to be an alternative society or a community or the church, there's a tension here. And there's a question ever before us, all of us, what is church to you? In your heart and mind, sure. Theologically, of course, you can provide an answer that we can find in a book or in the scriptures, and that's great. But in practice, what is church to you? Your relationship with church, your actions, your habits, they reveal what you actually believe about any given thing, and church is no different. What would someone who knows you well deduce that it is you believe about church based on your lifestyle? Would they say that the, the way of Jesus is obviously everything to you, that life in the community of God's people is central or would they say, oh, it's one thing among many things that they do, sometimes anyway? Or would they know at all? Would the way that you spend your time indicate life in community, faithfulness, is more or less important than, say, Netflix, based on time spent? I often wonder of those who want to belong to the church, but, you know, who show up two or three times a month or... Do they miss work as often? Do they 
call in two or three times a month because they, you know, needed a relaxing day at home or, or because the sun was out that day. Or, Sorry, boss, I won't come in today. I'm catching up with an old buddy or I'm going to the park or I'm watching TV. And you hear that analogy and you go, well, that's not really fair. I need that job to provide for myself and my family so I can't treat that recklessly. And they need me there and people are expecting me and they count on me. You see where I'm going with this? Yes. <laughs> And believe me, I'm really not interested in guilting people into church. I learned a long time ago, it doesn't even work anyway. I tried. <laughs> uh, I tried real hard. And Cam, too. It's not just me. Blame it on him, too. But try and build a movement on a group of people only there because they feel bad. It won't work. And, and they won't stick around anyway. And yeah, I get it. I work here. And yeah, you guys pay my salary, blah, blah, blah. I know all those things. But I'm telling you, honestly, as some, please hear me on this. As someone who has loved and, quite frankly, hated the church as someone who has, has experienced joy and agony in and because of the church, who has been hurt and who has hurt others, who has seen the beauty and the ugliness of other people, I have attempted to carry out my discipleship, my life, within and without the community of God's people, and that is why I am extending this invitation to you. That's why I'm here at all, not because of my job. I could honestly do something else and not because I was set up for ministry by like a long line of pastors. I stumbled into this gig butt backwards. I had like the most ridiculous story of anyone who ever became a pastor. I actually believe in all this. I can say this with integrity. I could probably find another gig. There are other things that I could busy myself with. My identity, for better or for worse, is really not wrapped up in being a pastor. Now, don't get me wrong. I honestly love my job. I believe that God asked me to do it, but I don't think my world will come to an end when he eventually says, that's good, thanks. You can go sit down now. I'm here because I actually believe in all this. But... I cannot do it without other believers. And I mean that in every sense of the word. We can't move into the future of all that God has for us as a social event or, or even as a subculture or one optional calendar appointment among many. But we can go forward in God's vision for our lives and our families and our friends, our community, as an alternative society, as those embracing a new way of life together, faithfully, as only it can be lived. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Let's pray and ask God's Spirit to come speak and come lead us. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.